This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning to everyone online. It's nice to see so many folks. So, disappointment. This is not part of my written talk, but I have to say that on the way over here, I was thinking, I hope they're not disappointed in this talk. (laughs) (laughs) And am I disappointed in this talk? (laughs) And uh, and also, it suddenly occurred to me in the middle of the night, oh, I should have structured this talk this way. (laughs) So, (laughs) here goes. Um, I think disappointment is really close to dukkha. Mm. Uh, Can anybody give us a quick definition of dukkha. Suffering. Suffering is the usual translation. Wobbly wheel, untuned wheel. Ooh, good one. Uh, Wobbly or untuned wheel. Unalignment. Not being in alignment, unalignment. Anxiety. Yeah, something like anxiety. Unsatisfactory. Unsatisfactory (laughs) Unsatisfactory Unsatisfactory (laughs) Yeah. So this is the condition that human beings frequently find themselves in, right, where... uh, you know, everything might be actually fine, but there's just something missing, right? We want something else, or we get what we want, and then we worry about losing it uh, or keeping it. Uh, we worry about getting something we don't want, right? This is this kind of condition, and it's the, the, the first noble truth the Buddha taught, right? This is our lot. So when we hear suffering, sometimes people think, well, I'm not really suffering, you know, I have enough to eat, I have a, I have a roof over my head, I'm, my health is good. And they say, those people are suffering, but it's a condition that we all share, and it has different manifestations. And since we all experience it, and I certainly have had my share of disappointments, <clears throat> I wanted to talk about it and see how you relate to it and maybe make some suggestions. And, um, you know, this, hap- this talk is happening you know, like all of a sudden, it seems that summer is here. Right? <laughs> you know, it's upon us. And, you know, it's hot now after a period of moderate temperatures. It was, seemed like, oh, this, this isn't so bad. Summer in Texas is not so bad. <laughs> Forgetting, right? <laughs> and it's not bad. It's just summer in Texas. But we're coming up now on, you know, the solstice. And the longest day of the year and the shortest night and I don't know about you all, but aside from the heat, which I don't actually really enjoy that much, very hot, humid conditions, they're not my preferred conditions, so I suffer. I love the long <coughs> evenings. I love the long evenings at this time of year, and I like the way the light kind of creeps into the zendo in the mornings when we're here, you know, sitting. Or if we're, I'm not getting up so early on the weekend, you know, wake up and you can see the light coming in. It feels sort of like a a natural order to have longer days and uh, shorter nights. And, you know, the days seem spacious and, you know, the light is welcome after short days of winter. So I'll say happy almost solstice to everybody. You know, and the solstice, the new year, Buddha's birthday, all of those kind of inflection points where we frequently have ceremonies, you know, this is where we look to the natural cycle, you know, or sometimes to our own life cycle, like a birthday or an anniversary or some other 
like family holiday or some personal date in the calendar, right? And we remember balance, right? We look to those inflection points or hinges in the year to kind of rebalance ourselves, or we try to. And this is especially true, of course, at New Year's, <laughs> right? You know, we, we find, we try to stir up some hope, especially in the New Year, you know, and we offer these traditional greetings like Happy Solstice, Happy New Year, you know, we congratulate each other on good fortune and so on, right? And these things can evoke really strong feelings in us, you know. And even though we might be in a place in our lives at any of these moments where, you know, like even a new year, we have this hope, which is constantly disappointed, right? That something's going to be different. This is the year I'm going to lose those 30 pounds, or I'm going to get in shape, I'm going to learn Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have my taxes in order and not panic in April, you know, whatever it is, right? We make these resolutions. And, you know, we end up with regrets and we have disappointments. But, you know, really we want to be happy. And we come to practice, many of us, looking for transformation. Is that true for you all? Yes. Yeah, that sound familiar? <laughs> Lots of hands went right up, yes. Right. So we want to be happy or we want to change. And we want to be hopeful. We don't want to give up. And so, you know, these kinds of moments that we have where we can remind ourselves, that, oh yeah, change should be possible, right? Right, so we keep trying, and this is our common state. You know, we want to make new beginnings. We want to clear the slate. We want to start over. So I want to read uh, a little talk given by Dogen. For those of you who are new, Dogen is our Japanese founder uh, of Soto Zen, the Zen we practice. He lived in the 13th century, so a long time ago now, but we quote him often. So in 1241, <laughs> Dogen gave a short talk on New Year's Day um, that's preserved in his collected writings, but the Eihei Koloku, if you're interested. And so this is 780 years ago. People have been hopeful for a long time. <laughs> Um, and, you know, you can substitute solstice for the new year if you want to. So he says, Today is the beginning of a new year, and it's also a day with three mornings. I just said to my Jiko, it was a day of three Jikos, actually. I had three different people. <laughs> so today is the day of three Jikos. It's the beginning of the year, it's the beginning of the month, and it's the beginning of the day. And then he told a story, which comes out of the traditional stories that we have in, uh, about our, especially Chinese ancestors. After Buddhism went from India, traveled from India, went to China, and then kept going east to Japan and Southeast Asia, and finally it jumped the Pacific to us. So this is an old story, even older than Dogen. A monk asked a teacher, is there Buddha Dharma at the beginning of the new year or not? And the teacher said, there is. Right? This would seem like, yeah, of course. There's always Buddha Dharma, right? The monk asked, what is the Buddha Dharma? What is the teaching? What is the truth? At the beginning of the new year. And the teacher said, New Year's Day begins with a blessing, and the 10,000 things are completely new. That was very uplifting. And the monk said, thank you, teacher, for your answer. But the teacher replied, 
this old monk today lost the advantage. We'll come back to that. Here's another version of this, a different dialogue. A different monk asked a different teacher, is there Buddha Dharma at the beginning of the year or not? This teacher said, nope. (laughs) This sound familiar? Zen does this, right? Back and forth. The monk said, well, wait, every year is a good year. Every day is a good day. This is also a teaching. Why isn't there Buddha Dharma at the beginning of the year? And this teacher said, old man Zhang drinks and old man Li gets drunk. (laughs) And this monk says, great elder, you are like a dragon's head with a snake's tail. And the teacher said, this monk today lost the advantage. (laughs) Same answer. So Dogen resolved this. Dogen told both versions of this story, and then he said, he said, both teachers, they both said, this old monk today lost the advantage. And he says, although the teachers speak of one loss, they do not yet see one gain or one advantage. And then he asked, suppose somebody were to ask me, Dogen, if there is Buddha Dharma at the beginning of the new year or not. I would say to them, there is. So Dogen's answer is, there is. Then he, he uh, fantasizes. Suppose the monk responded, well, what is the Buddha Dharma at the beginning of the new year? This mountain monk would say to him, may each and every body, whether staying still or standing up, have 10,000 blessings. And then suppose the monk said, in that case, in accordance with this saying, 10,000 blessings, in accordance with this, I will practice. And this mountain monk, Dogen, would say to him, I, Dogen, today, have advantage after advantage. Now please practice. (laughs) So Dogen cuts through the apparently opposite answers. There is, there isn't by proposing that this hypothetical monk asks about it in the same way. And his answer is, there is a sea of blessings for all, whatever the circumstances. And so the monk commits to practice, which prompts Dogen to say that he, as the abbot, as the founder of the lineage, has won it all. That's what Dogen wants. He wants everyone, standing or sitting, hearing the Dharma to practice. Now, three generations later, a successor of Dogen, who's not directly in our lineage, whose name is Daichi Soke, he wrote a poem that seems to respond to this particular discourse. It's called New Year's Day, or New Year's Morning. It's very short. He says, if someone asks me, this successor, what is the Buddha Dharma of New Year's, or the solstice, or today? I would open my mouth and say, there are no words to tell you. When the new year comes, or when the solstice comes, the true face of reality is revealed everywhere around us. And since it's New Year's, he says, look at the December plum, newly blooming, because the spring winds have blown. So in accord with causes and conditions. So, great assembly, 
What about when the summer comes and the sky, in some places, is orange and smoky from wildfire? When we see video of a dam blown up on the other side of the world and add this catastrophe to that of relentless and pitiless war, what about our own inability to shift our lives from fixed views and unwholesome habits and activities. What do we call this? We seem to be in an endless time of profound conflict and loss and instability. We have war, we have climate catastrophe, we have the suffering of refugees, we have appalling gun violence, we have legislated violence, profound fear and outrageous abuses. What is the Buddha Dharma of the summer of 2023? Our teachers tell us there is a timeless spring, always blooming, always the old plum of Buddha Dharma blooming, always spring arriving with every day. So our ancestral teachers teach, but I want to know, especially when I look at the news, (laughs) why is this freshness, this newness of every day so difficult for us to remain in touch with? Why is it so difficult for everyone to see? War, disaster, famine, violence. Our ancestors practiced with all these things too. Dogen was on the run from his enemies. He went up into the mountains and founded a monastery where the snows are seven feet deep in the winter. None of our ancestors were practicing in some bliss realm, just like us. So that feeling, which I started with, when we don't get what we want or hope for or expect, and also when we get what we don't want, (laughs) disappointment, or worse, despair. Even seeing the plum tree blossoming, we can be lost in this despair and unskilled ways of coping. Why is transformation so difficult when we say we want it? How do we meet it? And how do we practice with it? How do we keep practicing? So this is where Trungpa Rinpoche comes in. So this quote was posted last year sometime, I think, by my friend, Zen priest Ren Shin Bunce, who spoke here a couple of years ago and is going to speak again in July online. She's a senior priest in the San Francisco Zen Center lineage. And she posted this favorite quote, by Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who was a Tibetan teacher. And it's exactly on disappointment. Now, Trungpa was a gifted but also flawed Tibetan teacher who came to the United States and died young of complications of alcoholism at age of 48. So he had his, he had his share of uh, difficulties. But he was a brilliant teacher, and among other things, he was a friend of Suzuki Roshi, who is the founder of the San Francisco Zen Center. And some of his ashes are at Tassajara, the monastery in California that we, many of us have trained at. So this is what Trungpa said. And this is from his book, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism, which is a classic, right? <laughs> he said, we must surrender our hopes and expectations as well as our fears and march directly into disappointment. Work with disappointment. Go into it and make it our way of life, which is a very hard thing to do. 
He says, disappointment is a good sign of basic intelligence. (laughs) (laughs) You're all real smart. (laughs) It cannot be compared to anything else. It is so sharp, precise, obvious, and direct, straight to the heart. (laughs) But, he says, if we can open, if we can open to disappointment, then we suddenly begin to see that our expectations are irrelevant compared with the reality of the situations we are facing. Right, so, given all that we are facing, that we are always facing, whether we are in touch with it or not, like everywhere in the world something is happening all the time, I think this last line is really instructive and helpful. He says, we suddenly begin to see that our expectations are irrelevant compared with the reality of the situations that we are facing. Trungpa thinks that disappointment is essential. He teaches that it's absolutely necessary to go deeply into everything we think will fix us, will save us, whether the teachings, the sangha, the teacher, or something else. And he says, you know, all of these things can be turned to serve our self-centeredness, right? And our dis-ease with what is happening. We think it's going to fix it or make it okay. Instead, we need to embrace it without looking for a cure. So, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism was published in 1973. I recommend it. It's famous for stripping away all of our self-centered ideas about practice and about ourselves. But it was important enough, this thing about disappointment, this one piece of this book, that a few years later, in 1977, Trungpa published a short essay called Disappointment (laughs) in uh, a journal called the Tibet Journal. And it was only three pages long. But he says something a little bit different in that essay. So a few years later, this is what he says about disappointment. He said, we have to work with our problems. Intrinsically, there are no words of wisdom as such and we have to work on ourselves. At this point, the spiritual path becomes extremely disappointing (laughs) as our expectations have to be given away rather than built up further. And a little bit further on in this essay, he says, we need to allow ourselves to be disappointed, which means surrendering. This is his definition of disappointment. It means to surrender our idea of me and mine my achievement, my attainment. Simultaneously, he says, even if we are willing to surrender, that will itself be disappointing. (laughs) Even surrendering isn't going to really help. (laughs) It's not the answer, not the whole answer. So this is vintage Trumpa, direct and really unrelenting, right? (laughs) He says, if we give up and surrender everything to the pure and simple 10,000 blessings, though, he says, we begin to learn how to make a proper cup of tea, how to walk straight without tripping over. He says, our whole approach becomes more simple and direct, and consequently, so do any teachings we receive. He says, all of space, all the room that there is, is ours, because we are not obstructing anything, and we are not overcrowding anything. We have no desire to possess anything other than our one grain of sand, by by which he means 
this one person expressing the universe. So disappointment, he says, is essential. That's his teaching. We come to practice hoping for something, and it's a condition we all share and we all know. And actually, we kind of have a habit of being disappointed. Right? It's the flip side of the renewal and flowering of the new year or the new season or the new job or the new relationship or whatever it is, right? If we drop our hopes, Trumpa, I think, is right. Everything can become very simple. We just do what's right in front of us. That's the Buddha Dharma of every day is a good day, a day for which we are grateful and we are alive. You know, we can always be free. If we free ourselves, then all things are freed with us. I think this is the meaning of that mysterious line in uh, the Dogen address to his monks. Old man Zhang drinks and old man Li gets drunk, right? This is one reality of no self and no other selves. And I think this teaching links up in an odd way uh, with an essay by the writer Joan Didion. Do you know, the, do you know her? Yeah. Who died recently. I went on a Didion binge after she died. I read a bunch of her stuff. I love her writing. And this is an essay she wrote called On Self-Respect, which was published in 1961. I'm taking a little memory trip through the 60s and 70s here. Um, published in 1961, and in all places it was published in Vogue magazine in 1961. <laughs> She's a female writer. Female writer, right. She placed her pieces where she could until she got some mojo. So this is what she says in that essay. The willingness to accept responsibility for one's own life is the source from which self-respect springs, which sounds like a big Zen teaching. What Didion is talking about is our sense of the intrinsic worth of our lives, of just this one being's expression and practice. That's how I'm kind of running it through the Zen interpreter. This respect for ourselves is a way of practicing positively with disappointment, and this is what Didion says. To have that sense of one's intrinsic worth, which constitutes self-respect, it's the source of the confidence with which we should live. And she says, if we don't, we become alienated from ourselves, and then we can't do anything. And her point was that we may worry so much about what others want from us or want us to be that we are estranged from our inherent freedom to be who we actually are. Right? Those others include parents and spouses and children and bosses and teachers. And she concludes, this is a Didion quote, to assign unanswered letters their proper weight. Right? How many of you feel guilty about not answering letters and emails? <laughs> to assign unanswered, thank you for that laugh. To assign unanswered letters their proper weight, to free us from the expectations of others, to give us back to ourselves, there lies the great singular power of self-respect. Without it, one eventually discovers the final turn of the screw. One runs away to find oneself. I would say to the zendo or the monastery and finds no one at home. <laughs> right? You can't run. So we need to stop running away, stop hoping for something different, and settle down into the truth of our lives. Now I feel encouraged in quoting Didion because, lo and behold, our founder of this temple, Zenke Blanche Hartman, 
also taught about self-respect. And this is tied, I think, with this uh, disappointment in what we think we want. This is from the collection of her talks called Seeds for a Boundless Life. And she's talking about sitting practice here, which is our core practice, Zazen. So this is the part where Zen really comes to help us, because Trungpa is not a Zen teacher, and Didion sounds Zen, but she's not a Zen teacher either. (laughs) Blanche says, we can trust ourselves in sitting completely, without thinking, without feeling, without discriminating between good and bad and right and wrong. So she means we can be freed from mental activity, our cognition, our cognitive activity. And she says, because we respect ourselves, because we put faith in our life, we sit. So it's a kind of mutual reinforcing. We have faith and we sit, we sit and we have faith. She says, when our life is based on respect and complete trust, it will be completely peaceful. As Trumpa said, things will get simple. This is grandmotherly mind, which Dogen spoke of. It's not just because Blanche was an older woman, right? We all have, we can all have this grandmotherly mind. It's like a a positive and gentle reflection of Trungpa's tough love. (laughs) And in Blanche's words, I hear Trungpa's prediction that things will be simple, without struggle, and we won't obstruct anything, nor will we be obstructed. He uses the image of each of us as a grain of sand, which you might feel belittling, right? You know, you're just of no account. But Zenki Roshi upholds the value of each of us and our effort and the importance of it. You know, Dogen said one moment of zazen permeates all being in all directions and at all times, and any of us is capable of that. So Buddha Dharma is every minute. The new Buddha Dharma is of every minute, every mo- every moment. We can give up pretending. We can let go of all pretense and expectation. We can let go of bargaining <laughs> and so on and value our lives as they are, moment after moment, and have faith that our effort matters. We can open completely, right? I mean, Buddha, New Year's Day has three mornings in one, says Dogen. That's a wake-up call. <laughs> Is there Buddha Dharma in the new year or today when we are not protecting our small selves, expecting the teachings or the ceremony or anything at all to fix or save us, then there is something, there isn't something called Buddha Dharma, and also there is. We already have it. There is the practice of opening, of meeting, new every moment. We don't have to try to get or accomplish anything. As Blanche says, we practice to express and realize and settle on the suchness, the reality of this one, each of you, so that it can manifest in whatever activity we undertake, so that our oneness with all be with all be, being becomes evident. I want to close with a comment by a Zen teacher not in our lineage named Soko Morinaga. Um, he died in 1995, and he wrote this book, which is called <coughs> Novice to Master an ongoing lesson in the extent of my own stupidity. (laughs) Zen teachers are sometimes very direct. This is what he says. And so again, 
another Zen expression of all of these insights. He says, all people, regardless of how their lives are structured, hold themselves dear. You might think about that. Maybe you say, I don't really like myself very much. But actually, if you go a little further, you know, you do hold yourself dear. He says, everyone wants to be happy. He says, but enlightenment is the starting point of happiness. We can use the words true self-confidence in place of enlightenment. So he proposes to substitute true self-confidence for some idea of something you need to get or experience, something special. He says, true self-confidence means confidence in the true self. And confidence in the true self is a necessary requisite to happiness. The power in which you can come to believe in yourself is not gained through training. It is the great power that transcends the self, that gives life to the self. He means, you know, this individual self. The purpose of Zen practice is to awaken to the original power of which you have lost sight, not to gain some sort of new power. When you have sought and sought and finally exhausted all seeking, you become aware of that with which you have been from the beginning, before even beginning to search, abundantly blessed. The sea of blessings. And after you have ceaselessly knocked and knocked, you realize that the door was standing wide open even before you started pounding away. (laughs) That is what practice is all about. Thank you very much. Are there comments or questions? Yes, Eric. Um, Are bodhisattvas disappointed that there still suffering exists in the world? The question was, I think, if, are bodhisattvas disappointed if there's still suffering in the world? Yes. We wouldn't have any need for bodhisattvas if there wasn't any suffering in the world. So how can bodhisattvas be disappointed? They'd be out of a job. <laughs> bodhisattvas are, are enlightening beings in our, in our uh, understanding that uh, are actually us. They stay in this suffering world to help others, right? So, if there were no suffering, maybe no bodhisattvas. So we wouldn't need to worry about it. <clears throat> but I think it's an endless job, right? <laughs> Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. I think there's no chance of running out of suffering anytime soon. Hasn't happened yet. That's the job security for bodhisattvas. Yeah, there you go. They have they have tenure. <laughs> yes, could you tell me your name? Jesse. Jesse, hi Jesse. I, uh, I, I have a question on like mantras. Mantras. Yeah. So I know in the Heart Sutra at the end of it, it's like Gate Gate Parasam Gate Bodhisattva, and they say like. The most excellent sutra, the best sutra, or best mantra, you know, make it like this really big mantra, like the best thing you could ever chant in your life. Uh, But then there's like another, I only got every part, but I don't remember it, but there's another Buddhist sutra, and it was, it gave a different mantra, and it said, 
the king of all mantras, the king of queen mantras. They're like, it, you know, and it's very confusing. And then I know like the Tibetans do like the Om Mani Padme Hum. Yeah. So like, so I just kind of, I feel like I've read like these different things. I'll say, this is the best Buddhist mantra. That's the best Buddhist mantra. You know? uh, and why? And which one? Like, I don't know. I do know. What's, what one's better? What, why are they all saying that this is the best one? Okay. So over 2,500 years, various schools of Buddhism has, have arisen, and they make various claims, like we're better than everybody else. Right? This is the true way. Does sound familiar, right? When, when sects develop in any system, whether it's a political party or a religion right, or a philosophy, everybody is always saying, well, that was pretty good, but now you know, we have better insights, so we have different teachings or, you know, like, there's sudden enlightenment, there's gradual enlightenment, there's lifetimes of practice, there's, there's enlightenment right now, you know. And sometimes it's like, you know, come on over to our side. We're trying to set up a temple. We need some monks, right? We'll feed you and we'll teach you a mantra. So there's, there's lots of ways. I'm being cynical, right? But the Dharma has unfolded in many places and in many cultures and in many languages. And so some of this is just a particular expression of the one dharma. And, you know, everyone is the best. It's the one you're using. Having said that, you know, in our Zen, we chant the Heart Sutra in most temples every day. And that, that mantra at the end, you know, gate, gate, paragate, parasamgate, bodhisvaha, gone, gone, gone beyond, gone completely beyond, right? All hail wisdom <laughs> is, uh, somebody said the heart sutra is like the bullion cube of <laughs> Zen, right? It's like the, the whole teaching packed into one page. <laughs> and then there's the mantra which summarizes it, right? Crossing over, gone completely over. Oh, you know, what's, what did somebody once say? Far out. Uh, Svaha is kind of like a, a word that expresses this idea of far out <laughs> beyond words. Right? So don't get caught up too much in what's better or best. Just listen to the teaching. And the mantras are like a powerful incantation that summarizes something. It's the sounds that are actually more important. They have a kind of resonance in the universe is the teaching about them. Yeah, thank you. Um, Pat, and then I'll come back to the foyer. Thank you. Well, I think he just hit on the uh, seed of disappointment, and that is expecting something to be the best or being wonderful, <laughs> and then finding out it's not, <laughs> or opinions, yeah. or not what we are looking for. Yeah, we're all looking. I don't know. I think diets are, to me, the expression of dukkha. You know, if you're if you're into that kind of thing, it's like, what's going to be the one that's going to give me the body I want, right? And so we try everything. We're looking for the thing. You know, and at a certain point, maybe you say, well, this is me, right? You know, um, not that you shouldn't try to be healthy, but it's like we're always looking for the, the, the one thing that's going to do it. Yeah. Hi. Uh, Charlie. Charlie, hi. Uh, love, love the talk. Um, you. Could you say a few words about whether there's a positive role for hope? One of the things I got from your talk is that there's a very positive role for disappointment, and we should embrace disappointment as giving us an opportunity to let go of, you know, these expectations that we've been kind of, you know, imputing onto, onto reality. And 
we let them let go of those expectations. That kind of system though implies like a, a negative role for hope because hope originally caused those expectations in the first place. Um, I get that, but is there a positive role for hope within this worldview? So there's this um, sutra which I haven't been able to find. Just meaning and by sutra here, I just mean. Uh, one of the teachings of the Buddha, supposedly the, the original teachings of the Buddha, somebody asked him about hope. And, I th- and his response, I think, came from a place, you know, when people would ask Buddha about life after death, he would say, don't speculate, it's not actually helpful to your life right now to worry about some future state. Right? He didn't want to speculate about it, although he did have teachings about rebirth that he offered sometimes. But when someone said, well, what about the afterlife? It's like, okay, can I have hope for that? <laughs> right? Okay, if I, do, if I do good deeds, if I practice hard, if I support monks, if I build temples, right, then I'm going to have a better afterlife or a next life, right? So he wanted to cut off all of that. And, and he kind of said, well, this is about the future, and so don't worry about the future. But he did say, in response, something about the hope of being born human because of our great potential to be awake. That he says, he said something like, we have our senses, right? Five, the five skandhas, the five sense gates, plus our, our cognitive abilities. And this is an extremely rare and fortunate thing to be born human, like great fortune, even if we're suffering, even if we have you know, difficult lives, that, you know, and we should consider that a great blessing. And it's the, that we need this body, this human body, to... I hate to use the word achieve, but to experience awakening, to experience the full reality that we're capable of. And in some ways, I mean, I think people sometimes say our, our humanity, our humanness, is the universe aware of itself. Right? So there's hope in being born, a human being. There's your hope. You already have it. It's already been fulfilled. <laughs> you, have this, you have this amazing chance. So don't blow it. <laughs> Isn't choosing to be a Bodhisattva helpful for interbeing? I mean, a choice that's beyond self, but yet full. It's a move towards. Um, there seems to be hope in that. I think it's maybe it's beyond. It's hope. benevolence, and it's, it's beyond self. It's that's really where it is, I think. Yeah. It's like, it's a, it's a kind of, um, well, it comes from from this the Mahayana view uh, of practicing for the benefit of others and not just saving ourselves, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, when I first heard the teachings when I was in college, basically, I thought, give me the solitary monk sitting under a tree, you know, all, <laughs> I don't want responsibility for the whole <laughs> universe, right? I just want to save this one. And that, I think, is a kind of common reaction. I, I've just got enough on my plate. I'm going to sit here and be really quiet and keep my head down, you know, and hope that I reduce my suffering. Hope. But as we practice, we can have this sense of how vast, you know, this practice is, and that, at least in, in the big school of Buddhism, which we practice within, Zen is part of the Mahayana, the so-called great vehicle, that we don't limit our efforts to ourselves and that we extend them for the benefit of all beings. 
And we keep saying that, for the benefit of all beings, the benefit of all beings, you know, as a way, I think, of getting us out of our self-centeredness. So a bodhisattva is profoundly uncentered in self. Yeah, but I, I guess I'm, I, I don't necessarily see the word hope as being about self. Hope yeah. Is, hope is, a, nope. can be a communal, communal affect you hope for, for. Well, you know, it's an, I think hope is an antidote to despair. Yeah. Right. So we keep practicing, we continue because it's our way, because it's the simplest approach to life, right? Making a proper cup of tea. <laughs> right, making the ash exactly right in the in the incenser when you're cleaning the altar, just paying attention to each thing as yourself. Right, so we sometimes it's easier for us to extend our attention and care to a thing because it doesn't talk back. <laughs> right, you know, it's just like, oh yes, this is me, and then we can take the chance of extending that to everything and everyone we meet. And it's complicated when it's people, right. And, and it seems like what we do is often not helpful. So we, we stay with our intention, right, to act from a place of wholeness that isn't just about what I need. It can include what you need, but it isn't just about what you need. Yeah. So hope balances despair, I'd say. Yes, Jose. Right, so I get that disappointment is that difference between what you want and what reality ends up being. Um, and pretty much it's uh, hard to get the bullseye right um, because there's so much space around reality. <laughs> um, but then when, uh, when I'm approaching that door and knocking on it, I'm pounding on it with great stupidity. Uh, <laughs> 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 Haven't you ever done that, pounded on a door that was not locked? You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm going to go through a lot of disappointment before I realize that that door is open. So... Is working with that disappointment uh, and maybe not stepping away from the disappointment, just looking at the door? I, I'm trying to, um, I, yeah, that's where it starts to get slippery for me. I think if, I think, you know, ending with Zazen, both, both what um, Blanche said about it and what Morinaga said, you know, about, we, we, well, we can, of course, bring our expectations and disappointment to Zazen. Oh, I really wanted this to be a good period of Zazen, and instead, you know, right, I was coughing, and I was, you know, roaming around in my mind, and I was replaying some conversation, and making lists, and yeah. Right, so just having faith in our own being, and our, our presence, our value, beyond all judgment, I think is finding that open door, right? Somebody, in a, a teacher in, in Houston once said this about gates that, or doors. You know, we like keep shoving against a door that actually isn't locked. Or thinking, oh, this is too narrow. You know, I can't get through here. But like we make ourselves the shape of the door. We, and then we can go through it. You know, rather than forcing our way through or banging on the door. It's like, how do I work this? And then you kind of realize, well, it's actually easy. You just walk through it. You know, there's nothing really barring you except you. Some idea of you. Yeah. So sitting is a good way to grapple with this question without really grappling, but just what's missing? Uh, you know, what is missing when I'm sitting? 
Is there anything missing? And then extend that into the rest of your life. See what happens. And I think just continuing its continuity. That's why, you know, when Dogen got the answer, in accordance with this, I will practice. And he was like, now I have all the advantage. Just keep practicing. Keep going. Bruce, you've had your hand up for a while. Sorry. No worries, sir. I hope it's still relevant. I never thought about hope. Well, I had been thinking about hope during the talk, and maybe it's because you were quoting Trungpa Rinpoche, but I was thinking, wasn't it Emma Chodron who wrote about hopelessness as, as sort of a virtue or a skill? And, yeah. I, you know, I, I think we get caught up on the words, but it seems to me that you, in, in another part of the talk, uh, connected with something that works for me, which is you, you talked about faith feeding practice and practice feeding faith, the, the, the two kind of working together. And, and so I wonder if maybe what helps is not to think of it as um, something, you know, a specific destination, but more a direction. And not something you're trying to achieve, but I don't understand what it is. I just know that something calls me, for want of a better term, to sit. And I know that when I'm sitting, it, it adds something that I don't get from any other means as well. And so, you know, how many times have people said that who would set foot into a Zen center if there wasn't hope of something getting better or hurting less? So I, I think there's there's some level of aspiration to this um, that it helps to acknowledge and not to turn it into um, say spiritual materialism or something where you're trying to achieve uh, or improve something in particular, but to honor that part of you that that uh, sees or observes or, or, or perceives something and thinks this is a good thing to do. Something will come out of this, probably good, maybe I don't know, but it's worth doing right now, and we'll see what happens. I think that that kind of faith gets you through the tough parts, right, where you're just like, I don't want to get up in the morning, or I would rather, you know, be sitting in a nice coffee shop right now and having a cup of coffee, you know, than sitting in a Dharma talk. Um, <clears throat> this hopelessness, it sounds to us like a bad thing, right? But whenever Zen says things like, you know, with that sound negative, it just means just give up your idea about it. You know, give up your idea of hope be hopeless in that sense, without hope. But to us, it sounds like total, you know, like... Hell. Just, hell, yeah, get, get, dive under the covers and stay there, right? <laughs> you know, just stay there. Um, Mel Weitzman once said to someone who said something like, you know, I like to sit, but there's a part of me that wants to sit on the couch and watch movies and drink a beer. And he said, there's no part of you that doesn't want to practice. So that part of you that comes, that comes to practice, that is here, um, whatever your practice looks like, whether you just come once in a while or you're here every day, you know, is actually all of you. And it can, be, it can extend to everything, right? That's why we say we make Zazen the foundation of our lives and everything extends Zazen to everything. We need to cultivate that sense of self-worth, <laughs> I am completely whole, just as I am, and bring that out into everything that we do, whether we're with other people or not. 
otherwise we act out of our suffering and our disappointment. We act out. Right? We, we, are, we react. And that's not helpful to the world or to us. Uh, okay, boy, lots of questions. All right, so first, and then, all right, first, I saw him first, then Pavita, and then Nate, and then we'll probably wrap up. So, okay, Nate. Just a comment on this bodhisattva hope, <laughs> disappointment, conundrum. Uh, it seems to me the bodhisattva vow is very foolish. It is stupid. <laughs> <laughs> who would want to save? You know, who could who could imagine that I could save all beings? But we say it anyway. That's what we do. We we, we commit ourselves to this foolish, hopeful thing. I don't think I would say that we um, avoid hope. But that's the same thing as saying we avoid disappointment. Mm-hmm. If, we're, if we're saying we're going to embrace disappointment, then we embrace hope. We embrace all of it. That's. Um, but we take it. We take. We, we know if we hope, we'll be disappointed. But we. You know, great disappointment, great enlightenment. That's that's the that's the emptying out of, of the practice. So that's hmm. what struck me, or what's striking me now. Hmm. Thank you for that. Um, you know, there's a Zen prize is this figure of the fool, <laughs> right here. The fool who doesn't <laughs> don't stop seeking. <laughs> the fool who doesn't know anything, right? Who doesn't know? Who who gives up knowing? <laughs> Um, there's a there's a something we chant every week, you know, like uh, practice secretly, working within, like a fool, like an idiot, <laughs> right? Just to continue in this way is called the host within the host, which is a way of saying completeness, you know, non-duality. Yeah, right. And every time I get to that line, I want to burst out laughing. <laughs> I have to maintain my dignity, but I was like, you know, yes. I can this I can get on board with. Like an idiot. Okay, so I have the question. I don't know I understand right or wrong. For the disappointed it form answer form you expect, right? Um I've been to read the book a lot, practice a lot about the meditation. So for the same that like we talk each other in this deep like a people is have how how to say high education, but some group like a Buddhism, poor, they don't study, they don't understand exactly how to get to this uh, this point, point or expect point. They live day by day. So when I come here in Austin, my life is lose everything, but I don't expect to disappoint it. I work and live my life to be the mother, just normal for the middle class in the America. But for the power, you the people to believe, to get into money and do wrong for human life. So when I pack it from the meditate to be sassen, it's limit the belief, just accept the truth and and no matter hope, disappointed or expect that accept the truth and keep life to practice. Do you think I understand right or wrong? There's a <clears throat> there's an ancestor in our lineage in China, the sixth ancestor, was illiterate, couldn't read or write, totally uneducated. Also someone who came from a part of China where there was prejudice when he went to practice, he t- went walked a long way to find a teacher. 
And when he said where he was from, everyone said, oh, barbarian, right? He became a great teacher. So it doesn't matter your education. It, it, many times in our teaching we say between smart and not smart, no difference. Doesn't matter. Human beings. That's what matters. And settling down into your life as it is, living every day, making your living, being a parent, being a, you know, a, a person in the world is all that matters. You do it with a heart of zazen, heart of openness to the world, that's practice. Doesn't matter whether you can read all the languages and understand all the sutras. That's the most important thing. Thank you. Okay, one last one, Nathan. Oh, I was just going to, uh, I think it's Bruce online. Uh, he kind of covered what I was going to say was because when people started to talk about hope, I immediately thought of the uh, Trungpa stuff about hopelessness uh, as virtue. And, and I think, like, I don't, you know, and you said it sounds negative, um, but that's just, to me, it's like we live in a culture that encourages us to hope and have these outsized expectations. And there's, um, there's a writer, an academic named uh, Lauren Berlant, uh, who wrote a book called Cruel Optimism. Cruel, <coughs> cruel Optimism? Cruel Optimism. Mm. And like, the concept is basically that um, the thing that you, said, that you desire and you hope for is an impediment to your flourishing. <laughs> so uh, the thing that you get hung up on that you want is the thing that's standing in the way of you actually you know, attaining something that is like resembles satisfaction or contentment or something like that. And, you know, I just um, I just feel like it's not necessarily that, I mean, to live is to hope, but somebody else said that, like to just show up is to hope, you know, um, but it's not all for nothing or whatever, but it's it's like, a, you know, because we live in a culture that, would say, that encourages us to have unrealistic and fool party expectations. Uh, hope just gets you into trouble more than anything else. You know, hope just causes problems. Um, so it's, and I think that, I was just wondering if you could, you know, especially when it comes to, in regards to like something like cruel optimism, is that something that you could elaborate on in the context of the Dharma? Because I think it is very, like culturally and socially specific to contemporary America. It's, it's you know, because that's where we are right now. Well, you know, we, we do live in this kind of world of bigger is better, more is better, more money, better car, better house, better spouse, better job. <laughs> that was not a dig at anybody in this room. <laughs> but, you know, right? We, have, we do have these, like, oh, now it's going to be okay. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get the right fit. <clears throat> and it's never enough, right? Um, so that's a kind of cruel optimism, like it's always supposed to be bigger and better. And um, I think I had a thought that was actually really right to your point. Yeah, missing what's right in front of us, happiness that's right in front of us, right? Because we think we have, it's like, this is like a relationship thing often, right? Oh no, that's not the kind of person, right, that I'm, I want. I need this kind of person. I have to look like this, or they have to have this, these kinds of values or education or whatever it is, and we miss the person that's standing right in front of us. <clears throat> Everything is like that, right? That, you know, we are, we are trapped by our ideas. And so 
I think this is really true with practice because we have such high hopes and we are so vulnerable when we come, you know, like, are these people going to be like me? Are they going to accept me? Is this teaching really what I'm looking for? You know, <clears throat> is it worth putting myself at risk, you know, to, to join this new community? Maybe my, my partners in life or, you know, my family, my, my friends are like, what are you doing? Why aren't you here? <laughs> you know, why aren't you home? Right, we, we take a chance, we take a big risk, and then if we're disappointed in practice, it feels really hard, you know, to, to find our way. But, yeah, it's like, don't miss out on what is right in front of you. You don't, it's like even our ideas of what ideal practice is. Oh, now I see, I have to be here every day, and I have to learn how to be a doan, and I have to, I gotta, I gotta run for the board, <laughs> you know, right? And then, you know, we like overcommit and we get disappointed that we can't keep it up. There are just so many places to have this disappointment. But the hope that we feel, you know, is the hope of being whole, being humans, fully alive human beings. Mm -hmm. That's really the important thing. Something is going off, which is my cue to get down. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, I need to pick up my zagu, so if you can just stay for another minute on your, in your seats, and then we can have tea and cookies. <laughs>